Freedom of speech is a pillar of a civilized society, and yet in France, in Europe and beyond, the freedom of speech is under attack. On January 7, 2015, during an editorial meeting at the magazine Charlie Hebdo in Paris, two gunmen burst in. One minute, 49 seconds later, they had killed 11 people, including the magazine's editor and some of its leading cartoonists. The magazine had published cartoons of Mohammed. The gunmen had come to avenge the prophet by punishing blasphemers. In September of this year, a man stabbed two people near the former offices of Charlie Hebdo, unaware the magazine had relocated. He had come planning to set fire to the building that housed the magazine. And on October 16th, in the outskirts of Paris, a man beheaded a school teacher, Samuel Paty, because Samuel Paty had shown pictures of those cartoons to some of his students in a class on the freedom of speech. To talk about the climate for freedom of speech in Europe, particularly when it comes to the discussion of Islam, I'm joined today by the journalist and author Fleming Rose. Mr. Rose was an editor at the Danish newspaper Jyllands Posten, which in 2005 decided to publish several cartoons on the subject of Islam, a decision that led to a global crisis. It was these cartoons that were later republished in Charlie Hebdo. Mr. Rose is the author of a terrific book the Tyranny of Silence, which I highly recommend. It was named one of the best books of 2014 by The Economist. And I, I learned a lot from reading it. Fleming, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Elon. It's nice to be here. So I thought we should start with just sort of a wide angle perspective on what's going on. I've described some of the situation in France in the last few weeks. Um, tell us your your take on what's happening. You know, some people are portraying this as sort of the revival of a of a war with Islam or with against Muslims. How do you understand what's going on? Yeah, I I think it's important from the outset uh, to say that uh, France or I and I think a majority of Europeans don't think that we in Europe are at war with Islam or with Muslims. Uh, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a problem. I think we are in a hot war with violent Muslims, violent jihadists, who in order to promote their political goals are killing and threatening uh, people in, uh, in Europe. It's also important to stress that in the vast majority of these cases, the victims of jihadist violence are Muslims. Um, so I think we are in a hot war with these people. At the same time, I think we are in a cold war, that is a non-violent war, but in a war of ideas with uh, non-democratic uh, Muslims, Muslims who are in favor of abolishing democracy, uh, abolishing the right to freedom of expression and freedom of religion. Um, and we need to engage in this battle of ideas, and that's the way I understand what uh, Emmanuel Macron is doing in France. But it's important to stress that this is not a war or a battle of ideas with Muslim and Islam as such. I think, in fact, it's very important that we have uh, believing Muslims on our side in, uh, in this battle. So I thought it would be useful. I mentioned that you were at, on the staff at Yilan's Post in 2005. I, I think uh, there's all kinds of misconceptions about why you, your newspaper decided to commission those cartoons and how they became notorious. Can you just tell us sort of 
in a summary, what what were you guys trying to establish? What were you trying to do by commissioning these cartoons and, and publishing them? What what was the what was the trigger for doing this? Yeah, uh, thank you for that question. Um, uh, it's important to say that the cartoons did not come out of the blue. There are people out there who believe that we just published them, uh, you know, in order to uh, offend, uh, you know, Muslim sensibilities when it comes to to their belief. But that's not the case. Uh, there, there was quite a long prehistory, um, and and the the, the trigger behind me commissioning those cartoons was a debate in Denmark about a children's book about the life of the Prophet Muhammad. And the writer went public and said, you know, I've written this book, uh, but I cannot find an illustrator. I, have prop I had problems finding an illustrator. And the illustrator who finally uh, accepted the job insisted on anonymity, a form of self-censorship. He was afraid of appearing under his own name because uh, he feared what might happen to them. And, and later on, he's made a specific reference to the fate of uh, the Indian British writer, uh, Salman Rushdie, author of the Satanic Verses and the subject of uh, death threats uh, and a fatwa by Ayatollah Khomeini back in 1989, uh, calling on all Muslims in the world to kill uh, Salman Rushdie. And this uh, Danish illustrator, also made a reference to a Dutch filmmaker, Theo van Gogh, who was killed in November 2004 uh, in daylight uh, on the streets of Amsterdam because he had made a documentary or a, a, a short movie about, the, uh, about violence against women uh, justified with quotations from uh, uh, the Quran. So, so in Denmark, there was a debate about self-censorship when it comes to debating, uh, dealing with uh, Islam in the public space. And some people were saying, no, there is no self-censorship. Other people were saying, no, there is self-censorship. And in order to find out and to have a debate about this, uh, we commissioned uh, uh, those, uh, or I commissioned those cartoons back in, uh, in September 2005. And they were published within two weeks. Uh, we didn't publish them immediately because we we didn't know if this children's writer just has, had invented this story. And we didn't know whether this was just an isolated case or part of a broader trend. But within the course of one or two weeks, uh, there were several other examples of self-censorship or censorship or fear when it comes to, you know, museums, uh, movies, uh, books, uh, uh, stand-up comedians uh, dealing with Islam. So, and, and that's why we decided to, uh, to publish. And you have to say, you know, 15 years after the fact that, 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 that question number one, is there self-censorship when it comes to dealing with Islam in Europe? Yes, there is. Um, and I think it's increased uh, within the past 15 years. And question number two, if there is self-censorship, is this self-censorship just a result of people's, you know, imagination? Or is this self-censorship somehow based in reality? 
and and we know now that uh, you know this self censorship was based in in reality because people were killed, as you said in your introduction, um, in Paris in 2015. And I myself have been you know living with uh, security around the clock. Uh, every time I leave my house, I am accompanied by by bodyguards, and that has been going on for quite some years now. So, Fleming, one of the things that I remember from that time was that the cartoons were published in, in the fall of 20, 2005, but the real crisis that I described, in the, the thing where there were protests all in various countries, they were burning of embassies, Danish embassies, there was a boycott on Den Danish products. There was a lag time between the actual publication and then what we saw on the world stage. With, with So what happened in between those? I mean, because the way it's told, it, it was a spontaneous reaction and it, it, it if you look at that, I, mean, I, I study this after, uh, and I, you talk about this in your book, it was not at all spontaneous in the sense that, oh, we saw it and we, we people flipped out. Yes, uh, I think, you know, there, uh, there were two main reasons for, um, for the cartoons traveling, you know, around the world and, and turning into a big international uh, conflict. One was a group of imams in Denmark that tried to uh, rally public opinion in Denmark against uh, Jyllands Posten, uh, uh, my newspaper where I used to work, and the Danish government in order to have public opinion condemn the publication or even you know, uh, uh, toughen uh, blasphemy laws in, in Denmark uh, at the time. And, and they failed. They, they, lost, uh, they, they lost this public debate in Denmark. And then they decided to take their case to the Middle East. So they traveled to, uh, to Cairo and Lebanon and Syria and, um, and were met by high-level government officials and leading Islamic uh, clerics. And this would not have happened in, in any you know, ordinary situation, but was connected to the fact that there were domestic political forces in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Syria, in the Palestinian territories, later on in Pakistan, who, who used the cartoons in order to promote that domestic political agenda, you know, win elections, delegitimize uh, Islamist uh, groups as in Egypt uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, President Mubarak at the time, uh, for the first time in many years, had allowed the Muslim Brotherhood to run for office. And he, he, he used the cartoons, um, you know, to say to the Egyptian public, you know, I'm the real defender of Islam. You can see I'm, I'm attacking this Danish newspaper. It's not uh, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. And there were similar examples in, 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 in several parts of, uh, of the Muslim world. So that's the reason why it turned into a global uh, uh, conflict, not because of the cartoons, I think, in and by itself, but because uh, there, there were domestic political motivations um, for, for exploiting uh, the cartoons for domestic political ends. I think one of the things that was really striking at the time to me is that the, the many people who protested, I don't think it was actually possible for them to have seen the cartoons because they weren't republished beyond, I think they, they were obviously in Denmark and then Charlie Hebdo republished them and one or two newspapers 
carried them. I think there was one even in Jordan, but it, they weren't widely shared. In fact, the opposite happened. Newspapers refused to show them. Television refused to show them. So in many cases, I think it, it's, I think it's, it's right to think that a lot of the people rioting had not even seen these things. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and Norwegian friend of mine said at the time that, uh, you know, never have so many people reacted so violently to something that so few people actually have seen. <laughs> um, and and uh, just to tell you a, a, a funny story, uh, a Danish filmmaker who made a documentary about the Khartoum crisis, he traveled to Iran and he found the guy from uh, the Revolutionary Guard, uh, Guard's youth forces, Bashish, uh, who had incited the demonstration against the Danish embassy with Molotov cocktails. And he asked them, you, you know, did you see the cartoons? No, uh, do you want to see them? Yes. And, uh, and then the filmmaker um, showed him uh, this uh, famous cartoon of the prophet with a bomb in his turban. And, and this I Iranian Islamist did not react to the bomb in his term and that everybody in the West had said, oh, this is so offending. He said, why does the prophet look like a Sikh? So he, he didn't look like an Arab, but uh, like a Sikh, and he found that very offensive or more offensive than the bomb in his turban. And, and it tells you that, 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 that there is no cartoon or image that offends in it by itself. The offense is in the eye of, uh, of, of, of the beholder. So I want to turn now to the role of Charlie Hebdo in this. So, so as I said, I think it was, am I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think initially one of the few newspapers to re reprint the cartoons in solidarity was Charlie Hebdo. And then what happens if we skip forward to 2015, Charlie Hebdo is, that, that's the, the the massacre that I described at the very beginning, and there was an enormous outpouring of support for or uh, for the the journalists who were killed, and we saw people, I think millions of people in the streets of France, uh, holding up banners saying "Je suis Charlie, I am Charlie," and it wasn't uniform. There were people who who said the opposite. They, they were, but I think there was just an incredible outpouring. And we saw heads, heads of state from around the world locked in arms, walking down the street in solidarity with them. But one of the things I, I, that struck me not long after that is it, it didn't seem to last. I mean, the, the, the sentiment didn't, didn't sink in. Is that what's your impression? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and already a, a week, uh, you know, the, the day... Uh, uh, I think there was four million people who took to the streets of France and show solidarity with uh, Charlie Hebdo. And I already said back then that I, you know, this is not the real test. This is a kind of Diana moment where you have a media event where people feel emotionally, uh, um, emotional solidarity with, with victims of, of, of violence. Uh, the real test is afterwards, you know, in editorial offices, what decisions are you going to uh, make as an editor, as a journalist? What are politicians going to do? What is civil society going to do? And the support for Charlie Hebdo e evaporated uh, quite quickly. I was in Paris in February 2015 and spoke to my friends and colleagues who had survived and already a month after 
the killings, uh, the tone started to shift and say, yeah, well, may maybe you have the right, but uh, you shouldn't have done this. Uh, and couldn't you see it coming? Uh, why continue to do things like this? And so on and so forth. And today, I think, uh, I think Charlie Hebdo feel pretty isolated in uh, in France and and uh, uh, you know even Julian's Post where I used to work uh, I, I left the newspaper at the end of 2015 in fact as a result of a conflict I had with the uh, the top management about about our uh, lack of uh, support for freedom of expression uh, uh, when it comes to discussing uh, these uh, issues. Julian's Posten uh, uh, has not published any cartoons uh, of the Prophet Muhammad since 2008 um, due to, uh, to fear. And, and that's, that's real. I understand that uh, quite well because uh, there have been several plots uh, to attack the newspaper. Kurt Westergaard, the cartoonist who made the cartoon of the prophet with a bomb in his turban, was attacked in his house and nearly killed. So, so there is a real threat. Um, but the fact of the matter is that um, the key to liberty and freedom is courage. And uh, you, you, you cannot ask people, of course, to put their life on the line and, and sacrifice themselves. But if everybody thinks that way, then there will be no freedom of expression because there will always be powerful forces in a society who wants to silence and will use threats, intimidation uh, uh, and, and violence to silence voices uh, with whom they, they, they disagree. So I, I want to show now a cover of a Charlie Hebdo uh, special edition that was published uh, in September. And they, they decided to republish the cartoons on their cover. And this was, in, this was timed in connection with the trial that's now underway in France for, uh, I think, 14 people who are accused of involvement in the massacre. Uh, so I read this um, the special edition, which is available in English for people who, who want to read it. And it's interesting because uh, inside they have a number of articles where they, they talk about sort of what's happened since 2015. One of them really struck me. It's a, it's a list of quotations from prominent people in France, journalists, philosophers, politicians. And the theme of all of their statements is freedom of speech, but you can do X, but don't, don't offend. And one of them was... I think he's a philosopher. I forget who his name, but what he said is you shouldn't spit on the beliefs of the most marginalized group of the people who are um, meaning Muslims in particular. And so his attitude, I think is, is, I don't think it's, it's unique to him. I think there's definitely this sentiment. I think we saw it here in the United States after uh, Charlie Hebdo, after the attack in Garland, there was an attempted shooting at a, at a cartoon uh, uh, event. So there's, there's definitely this idea that, we're, we're not going to protect the principle of freedom of speech if there's some group that we feel, well, we don't want to upset them. And that seems to have really sunk in. And I mean, do you see that beyond France? Do you see it elsewhere? Yeah, and I, I think it, it's a very flawed argument um, for two reasons. Uh, first, I think it's 
its its heart to define uh, Muslims in Europe as a marginalized um, uh, uh, group that that doesn't have a voice and so on and so forth. I mean, if if you think about it, um, uh, we have an unwritten blasphemy law in Europe. We don't have it on the books anymore uh, in most countries, but we have an unwritten blasphemy law because there are violent uh, Muslims who have who have demonstrated that, that they are willing to kill if their religion or religious uh, symbols and sensibilities are offended. And that is an exercise of power. Uh, I mean, in, in, in Europe, we have relegated the monopoly on violence to the state. In exchange, we have the freedom to exercise our freedom and rights within the law and the constitution, and the state has a responsibility to, to protect us when we do that, even, even if we say offensive uh, uh, and insulting things, as long as they are within the law. And, and blasphemy in most European countries today is within the law. But nevertheless, uh, nobody except Charlie Hebdo uh, publishes these kind of, uh, of cartoons. I mean, that's a sign of power, I think, uh, that you can, in fact, impose your norms on, on uh, 500 million people. Uh, in in, uh, in 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 this way, so that's that's the one argument. The other argument about you know do not offend. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm offended every day when I switch on my 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 television. Uh, I'm offended when I read newspapers, when when I, I I listen to people saying outrageous things that I will will with which I I I disagree. But the difference is that. I and the vast majority do not threaten violence. We do not kill people with, with, with whom we disagree or people who say things that we, we dislike. So I, I, I just think uh, this is not about, you know, causing offense. Um, uh, everybody that lives in a democracy, uh, especially in a democracy that is multicultural, multi-ethnic and multi-religious, knows that uh, the price for our freedom is that from time to time we will we will be exposed to opinions and speech that we hate uh, or at least uh, uh, dislike. So I think it's a kind of, you know, it's it's not very courageous to say to say um, you shouldn't do this because I'm afraid what might happen to me or my family if you do that or to my country. That's that's not very courageous. It's you 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 you. you you hold the moral high ground if you say instead, well, you should not offend, you should not be evil and do these bad things. You can see I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm protecting this vulnerable, uh, weak group. And, and this is, by the way, also what I you know, think is uh, racism of low expectations. There is this sense that, that, uh, that, 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 that Muslims are not able to... Uh, to be rational and mature uh, and grown-ups uh, in the same way as everybody else in our society. And I, I think, in fact, that's very discriminating. And, and if you go back to, um, to the cartoons of 2005, that in, was, in fact, one of my intentions, you know, saying to Muslims in Denmark, we do not expect more of you, we do not expect less of you, but we expect of you exactly the same as we do of every other individual and group. Uh, 
And in that lies a recognition of the fact that you are on an equal footing with everybody else in, uh, in, in, in our society. I've been reading some of the accounts coming out of the trial of the accomplice or the alleged accomplices from the, the Charlie Hebdo uh, uh, attack. And one, one statement from a journalist who survived uh, really caught my attention. He, he, and I'm going to quote it to you. He said, uh, quote, we're living under siege in Paris in 2020. Uh, what we are enduring, he said to the journalist in the, in the, the courtroom, you are interested in it. And one of the things that struck me about this is that, you know, if you leaf through Charlie Hebdo, it's, it's not the kind of magazine I would choose to read. It's not my, it doesn't particularly interest me. It's, it's satirical, it's parodic, it's even nihilistic in places, but I, I admire their courage in going after the equal opportunity uh, uh, offenders. But if you, if you understand, I think if you look at what Charlie Hebdo is, it's not, it's not like the New Yorker, it's not sophisticated, it's not the New York Times Sunday Magazine. And in a certain way that I can see this, I think this often happens with issues of freedom of speech. It's it's less appealing to defend a sort of a semi-disreputable publication and say, you know, well, there's a kind of snobbery about it. Well, who cares what happens to them? But I think that the reality is you have to defend freedom of speech regardless of who it is that's speaking. Even if it's someone that you, like I wouldn't subscribe to Charlie Hebdo, but it doesn't matter. And I, and I think that's part of what's missing. And that's what I think is part of the tragedy that's going on there. Absolutely. And, and I think in fact, I mean, Charlie Hebdo grew out of the youth rebellion in Europe in, in 68. I think it was founded in 71. So, and it, it's very French in the sense that it sits on the shoulders of a long history and tradition of mockery of religion that is quite unusual in the United States. And, and that, but that's part of French history that, that uh, um, you had, you know, 150 years of wars of religion in France between Catholics and Protestants and, and other kind of believers. And, and the uh, um, uh, blasphemy was, in fact, suspended in, I think, 1791. And then it was reintroduced, but you had then the separation of state and church in 1905. And there's always been this very tense relation between the Catholic Church and, and uh, you know, non-believers uh, and, and the Catholic Church historically has been very powerful and, and has put pressure on you know secular principles from time to time and and non-believers have fought back by being very uh, uh, i mean harsh and and uh, right in your face uh, uh, mockery and 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 so on and so forth uh, but but that is a very french thing uh, and and in that way i think charlie hebdo is uh, is part and parcel of uh, of, of france and it, it belongs to uh, the left uh, that used to stand up for freedom of expression. Uh, but I, I agree very much with, with, with your point that uh, I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who said that we need to protect, uh, you know, speech uh, that we hate. Uh, and, and in Denmark, for instance, we have a, a, a bigot politician who is very anti-Muslim. 
his you know burning Korans on 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 the streets of Copenhagen, and he was running for parliament uh, a year or two ago. And he's very offensive. He's saying a lot of offensive things. But I think it's very important to protect his right to do these things as long as he's doing it within um, within the framework of the law, because he's not inciting violence. He's not calling, you know, for for violence. He's not committing terrorist attacks. But he's exercising his civil liberties and rights in a very provocative uh, uh, way. But he has relegated, you know. The, the monopoly on violence like uh, I and everybody else in Denmark to the state. So the state has an obligation to protect him, even though there are a lot of critical voices talking about, you know, how many millions we have spent on his security. But it's not about him. Uh, it's about it's about fundamental uh, uh, principles of a society that 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 uh, that wants to have freedom of expression. I want to turn to the way the French government is responding. So even before the attack um, outside of the former offices of Charlie Hebdo and what happened in Nice, which I haven't mentioned, but there was a knife attack at a basilica in the city of Nice in the south of France. And the thought is that that was committed by someone who was an Islamist, sort of wanted to go after Christians. And But, but well before this, the French government, uh, President Emmanuel Macron had given a speech saying I have a putting out a new policy approach to what he describes as Islamist separatism. Um, and he's being decried in many places, people are criticizing him, but leaving aside whether his policies are right or not, and leaving aside the criticisms and so on, is there a problem that I think he's trying to address that he's because you know people are talking about parts of France or parts of other cities in Europe where there is a kind of self-segregation among Muslims. Do you, I mean, is that something you think, is that a, an issue? I mean, I think that's an issue in, uh, in, in, in every Western European country. And I think it's also important to keep in, keep in mind that there has been terrorist attacks, not only in France, you know, in, in, in Germany, in the UK, in Denmark, in Sweden, in the Netherlands, uh, in Austria uh, recently, uh, in Spain, so so the, you know this is a common uh, phenomenon. But it, it is true that 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 France is uh, probably hit harder than than most European countries, but it's not exclusively um, a, a French thing. And those who say, well, you should reinstate the blasphemy law in order to fight to uh, you know accommodate uh, this, I just want to say that Austria has quite a tough blasphemy law. And just you know, one week or two weeks ago, they had a similar uh, terrorist attack uh, when uh, I think four people were killed. Um, so there is a problem, and I think it's multifaceted. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, as far as I understand, Macron is saying, you know, we want to fight not 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 Islam and not Muslims, but Islamist separatism. And by that, uh, I think he means that you have a group of people uh, who are uh, identifying themselves in opposition to the French Republic and its values. Uh, and, uh, and Macron has, you know, suggested several things. He wants to limit uh, homeschooling, 
uh, I personally think that 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 um, uh, I don't think the radicalization is only going on, you know, when it comes to homeschooling. You could do that not as part of of any you know public public schooling program uh, uh, as well. But but he has decided to to limit. Uh, the the opportunities of homeschooling for uh, for 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 everybody, but but the target, of course, is uh, the Muslim population uh, of 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 France, and and then he also wants to uh, to disinvite uh, imams from uh, the Middle East who are invited and paid for by countries like Turkey and Qatar. And who are running and uh, teaching uh, Islam in in mosques across France, and they see this as a hotbed for uh, uh, radicalization. And finally, they want um, civil society associations to sign a charter uh, because some of this radicalization is going on in sports clubs, clubs, uh, and other civil society uh, uh, associations. Uh, Macron want them to want them to sign a charter, so they commit to uh, the values of rep republic. Uh, you know, like uh, secularism, uh, gender equality, and 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 things like that. Uh, I don't have a specific problem with uh, with that. My my problem with the French approach is that they are not very consistent in their defense of free, freedom of expression. Uh, I mean, um, uh, France is in many ways a militant democracy. Uh, they have Holocaust denial laws. They, they also try to pass a law uh, criminalizing uh, the Armenian uh, genocide. Uh, they have even laws criminalizing insulting the French flag. Um, so, so uh, I, I think it creates a disbalance, and among Muslims, a sense of being targeted. When, on the one hand, you have the right to blaspheme, uh, but you 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 do not have a right to uh, to deny the Holocaust or or. Uh, uh, being anti-Semitic, uh, I mean, I find it outrageous, and I don't think there is a moral equivalence between mocking a religious symbol and denying uh, the killing of six million people uh, in Europe during World War II. But I think that is a moral distinction. It's uh, it's, it's it shouldn't be a legal distinction, and I, I think, in fact, that this is reinforcing the sins among Muslims that they are being discriminated against when it comes to, you know, their right to say offensive things. And, and I think it's especially unfortunate because if you go to the Middle East um, and, and, and the countries of origin of, of, of many of these immigrants, they were taught in school that the Holocaust didn't happen. Uh, 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 and they come to Europe and they have these outrageous ideas and and we are not able to confront them because if they say what they think, uh, they will be, uh, you know, prosecuted. Uh, and they will just, I, I don't think they will change their mind. Uh, they will just say, oh, the Jews are also running the show here in uh, in, 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 in Europe. So, so I would like to see a more consistent 
um, approach to freedom of expression in, in, in France than what is the case at the moment. So Fleming, I've, I've highly recommended your book. And um, you said that you added an afterword to it after the Charlie Hebdo attack. So I think the last time we talked was just a few weeks before the attack when the book had just been had come out that year. And so now with reflections on the attack. So tell us about the experience of being in France in 2015 after this happened. Yeah. Um... As I said earlier, I traveled to France in, in February 2015, and I met with uh, uh, colleagues uh, who had survived the, the attack. Um, and, and, you know, I feel a lot of solidarity with them. They went through horrible things. We, we share this fate in, in, in a way. Um, but I was surprised about a lacking consistency in their argumentation for free speech, because I found out that, that, that all the people working at Charlie Hebdo uh, support uh, France's uh, rather tough hate speech laws, uh, meaning that they want, you know, anti-Semitic or anti-Muslim speech uh, criminalized when you target a group and not just a faith. Um, and as I said earlier, I think this is a moral valid argument but it's not a valid legal uh, distinction, uh, I think. I don't think that denying the Holocaust equals incitement to violence. It's outrageous. I want to denounce it. Uh, it makes me angry and, and sad, but I don't think it should be a criminal offense. Uh, first and foremost, because I don't think you change people's mind by uh, banning uh, you know, uh, their right to say what they think. You do that by, you know, more speech, by confronting, asking them to argue for their point of view, uh, showing documentation, uh, refuting their arguments, uh, like it happens in, in, in a free and public debate. So, you know, we were talking about Macron's speech and his, his proposals to elevate Republican values in France and make sure that everyone in France commits to those rather than elevating sort of religious identity. What's your perspective on, on those Republican values that France holds so dearly? You know, I, I, I share those uh, Republican values. In fact, I'm not, I'm not a royalist, even though Denmark has a queen. <laughs> it's a monarchy. I, in fact, I would like to have a republic uh, in, in, in Denmark, but I, I'm in a minority here. Uh, I, I, I love France's uh, Republican values. That is, you know, based on the fact that you, you encounter one another in the public space as citizens, as equals. And the most important part of your identity is not whether you are an aristocrat, a worker, a Muslim or a non-Muslim, a Buddhist, a non-Buddhist. You are encountering one another as equal citizens. And I think that's a very beautiful uh, and right, true idea that I support. But the problem is that, that, that quite often there is a gap between those ideas and principles and values and then uh, the day-to-day -day life of uh, ordinary Muslims and immigrants where it can be very difficult to uh, find a job, to find an apartment, uh, to get an education if you have the wrong name or the uh, wrong uh, background. So I think, I think some Muslims in, fr in France are feeling frustrated 
uh, when they listen to these uh, beautiful ideals and when they experience their day-to-day -day life and, and, and is conf are confronted with uh, discrimination and, and things like that. Recep uh, Tayyip Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, has so he, he reacted to Macron's speech and criticized it heavily and he's called called for a boycott of French goods and there are actually places in Jordan and Kuwait and Qatar where there have been French products taken off the shelves. There are even protests in Iraq and Libya and Bangladesh. And, and it, I think part of what he's doing is what you're describing, which is uh, characterizing France as singling out Muslims. Um, so I'm interested in your perspective on, on just sort of the, the, the relationship between Turkey and the EU or France in particular and sort of the tensions there. Mm. Well, I think in general, the relationship between EU and Turkey is not very good. Uh, Turkey is still officially an applicant for membership of the European Union. But uh, both Turkey and the EU know that this is never going to happen. And, and, and one of the leading voices for some years for blocking Turkey's accession to uh, the EU has been France. Not only Macron, also Sarkozy and uh, Chirac uh, before him. So that, that has been going on for quite some time. Um, uh, I mean, there are many Turkey immigrants in Europe. I think there are more in Germany than in France. But Turkey is also supplying France with uh, imams that are, you know, state-educated uh, imams in, uh, in, 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 in Turkey. Um, the, the key here is that Turkey and the European Union in 2015 or 16, in the aftermath of the refugee crisis in the summer of 2015, signed an agreement with Turkey um, uh, saying that Turkey will block uh, the border uh, between the European Union and Turkey and, and um, in exchange they will receive a uh, I think it was 3 billion uh, euros, uh, uh, you know, to pay for uh, accommodating these refugees in, in, in Turkey. And, and, and I mean, it means that, that, that Erdogan is uh, sitting on, you know, on, 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 on a trigger. Uh, he could just open, open the floodgates and, uh, you know, let these refugees uh, uh, go to Europe. Um, and create potential big problems because the majority of European populations today, uh, you know, would be against such a uh, su such a, a, a situation, and they don't want the repetition of 2015. And of course, it creates uh, you know space for intimidation and and pressure and and things like that. But I I I, I don't think Erdogan. Uh, has that much influence on the debate about Islam in the in 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 Western Europe? Uh, I don't think uh, people in Western Europe takes him that seriously. Uh, you know, apart maybe apart from the Turks who are, are uh, or people with Turkish background who are living among us. Uh, um, but but in terms of of the refugee issue. Uh, uh, European politicians know that uh, that he has the power to um, to create problems uh, for them. But I, 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 will, I will I will just add one thing oh. that I think is important here, and that is uh, 
you know, some people are saying that that the jihadists who have committed these uh, uh, murders within, you know, the past 10-15 years or so, that it's just a, a small number of people, it's some crazy people on the fringes of Islam. And and that's true in the sense that that very few people are willing to act on their beliefs and and commit killings. But I think we have to keep in mind that in, in 13 Muslim majority countries, you receive the death penalty for blasphemy. Uh, in most countries, uh, you know, people are not executed when they are convicted to death. But even though it is in the criminal code that, you know, committing a terrorist attack, killing a thousand people and committing blasphemy is the same kind of crime. And I think it promotes and reinforces social and cultural norms, um, convincing people that if you commit blasphemy, you deserve to die. Uh, the vast majority of people will not react on this. But as we saw back in 2015, after the killings at, Char at Charlie Hebdo, in, in many French schools, um, uh, students, pupils with a Muslim background refused to stand up uh, in, in, in silence and they pro protested. Uh, you see the same now in Germany. I've, I've, I've read about uh, schools in, in, in Berlin uh, where uh, teachers are, you know, shouted down when they talk about uh, Charlie Hebdo and, and, and what happened there. And they, they, they basically think that blasphemy is a grave uh, crime that deserves uh, capital punishment. And I think we, we have to have to keep that in mind, that this is not just some marginal uh, phenomena when it comes to uh, what people think about blasphemy. Another thing is, uh, you know, the way people act on their beliefs. So I, just to close out the conversation, I wanted to get your perspective, thinking about the situation from you know, that week in September, so many years ago, when you and your colleagues were thinking about commissioning those cartoons in 2005, the Charlie Hebdo attacks 10 years later, and then today, five years after the attack, what do you see as a, do you see any trends or patterns? What is the climate? Is it, it sounds like it's not improving. No, I, uh, I mean, I think the situation today when it comes to freedom of expression is worse than it was in 2005. But this has not only to do with our debate uh, about Islam and uh, uh, the, the, the big difference, I think, that is that, that back in the beginning of the century, um, you know, these uh, jihadist groups uh, represented a new threat to freedom of expression and and the state was kind of the back burner. Uh, I think today uh, governments and states are back in the driver's seat when it comes to imposing uh, new restrictions on freedom of expression. Um, and and if you look at at Freedom House, Reporters Without Borders, uh, the Economist Freedom Index, you will see that within the past ten years, uh, freedom of expression has been on. Uh, uh, world, but the new thing is that within the past, you know, five eight years, this is also happening in uh, in liberal democracies in in the West. Uh, governments imposing, you know, new restrictions on hate speech, 
you have in, in, in Germany a law um, uh, saying that Facebook, Twitter, and other digital platforms have to remove manifestly uh, illegal content within 24 hours uh, or risk a fine of uh, 50 million euros. This is quite uh, money and of course uh, companies then will tend to overreact uh, and they will delete far more content. Uh, and they, the vast majority of what they are deleting is in fact uh, uh, legal. I know this is not a First Amendment issue in the United States because these are private companies, but still so much of our public conversation is taking place on these platforms. So it's not it's not, it, it doesn't, it's, it's not unimportant what kind of rules uh, are being imposed uh, upon them by governments and what kind of rules are they imposing upon themselves. And I think uh, right now uh, we are in a situation of moral panic on so many levels with, with digital platforms and, and other forces. And, and when you have a situation of moral panic, uh, usually uh, fundamental liberties and, and rights, rights are being sacrificed. And I think that is what is happening uh, right now. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I want to remind everyone about your book, The Tyranny of Silence. Highly recommend it. You can find it on Amazon. There's Kindle, there's hardcover, there's paperback. Definitely recommend uh, picking that up. I, I, I learned a lot from that. I want to mention as well, uh, two books from the Ayn Rand Institute, my colleague Steve Simpson put together Defending Free Speech and Ankar Gatti and I put together another book called Failing to Confront Islamic Totalitarianism. Both of them touch on these issues. I think they're well worth people exploring. And then let me close by encouraging everyone who's watching us uh, on YouTube. If you enjoy this, please subscribe to our channel, like the video and leave a comment. We'd like to see what you think. And uh, thank you all for watching. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.